Welcome to Where's Home Really, with me, Jimmy Famarewa, a podcast where I get to speak to people from the world of music and media, food, arts and culture, about the people and places that have made them who they are today. This podcast is about the places we've come from, the places we've been, and the places we want to go, and what it means to belong. It's about people, family, heritage, and most importantly, home. We'll be exploring that sense of home by asking our guest about four key elements. Those are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. For me, one of them is a phrase that I really associate with my elders in my kind of Nigerian family. And they always say, more grease to your elbow when you've kind of accomplished something, be it professionally, mostly it's like work-related. And I sort of love the quaint old-fashionedness of it, but also that idea of fortitude and always pushing on. And I am immediately kind of on the phone to a relative in my vast family who I'm perhaps not even really sure who they are or whether we're actually related. And they will normally say, more grease to your elbow. And I kind of love it as this little kind of spur to kind of keep on going. Uh, So that's one of mine. And that's something that I definitely cherish and gives me that sense of home. But what about my guest? So let's find out. A lot of clothes came from a bin liner from people from church. But she would always make it feel, wow, look at this. This is so nice. Wow. And I'd say, mum, this has got a label. And she'd say, yes, there's a way that she could spin everything for us. So that it was kind of really magic for us. We never felt like we were really missing out. Today's guest is a singer, musician and songwriter. After releasing her self-titled debut album in 2006, she has sold millions of records around the world and has received a slew of nominations and awards, including multiple Grammys and Mobos, as well as making the Mercury Prize shortlist. Her career has taken her all over the world, including partying with Quincy Jones and going to church and then lunch in LA with none other than Mr. Stevie Wonder. Inspired by a trip to the Stony Island Arts Bank in Chicago, her new project, Black Rainbows, is a hugely acclaimed, five stars all round celebration of black history and culture. It is complex, thrilling, utterly unexpected, and grapples with so many of the themes that we talk about on this show, so I can't wait to discuss it with her. A huge welcome then to today's guest, Corinne Bailey Ray. There we go. Oh, thank you're you. In. Thank you, Jimmy. You're that's fully a, welcome. That was such a great introduction. I really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. Those beautiful, maintained, dulcet Yorkshire tones <laughs> that are kind of <laughs> well, you know, unaffected you by all that glamorous travel. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get into all of that. And I really do want to talk about Black Rainbows, which is just astonishing. And I love it so much. I can't congratulate you for it enough, really. Thank you. But I always start by sort of turning the show title back onto our guest that idea of where's home really where are you really from what are the things that it initially makes you think of and initially makes you feel I mean home it's easy for me to to think of you know home is Leeds where I'm from in West Yorkshire Mm. in England and I'm often talking about Leeds because I'm often being asked where I'm from whether it's in a a lift in, I don't know, an American city or whether I'm in Tokyo or whether I'm in Rio, you know, I get to travel to these great places w- with my music. Yeah, People often can't place my accent, I guess, because it doesn't sound like a London accent or received pronunciation or Mary Poppins or whatever are the touchstones for people. 
So people sometimes say, are you Australian or are you, you know, they can't place it. I say, I'm from, I'm from Leeds, I'm from England. And I have to explain how there's, you know, a different accent every 20 miles in the UK because of how old, you know, the accents have been established, you know, before there were cars. Yeah. You know, when it was just a, a long walk to the next village and, and we all had these funny voices. So, so yeah, I always wear leads. It seems quite kind of fitting given Black Rainbows kind of was really formed by this encounter with this amazing archive of Black American and like African American history. And so that notion that you had to go somewhere else to really start asking questions about who you are in your own journey. And I wondered, yeah, what that has been like in terms of learning about the African American experience. It's been a really interesting thing. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in America over the years with my music. And I remember talking to a well-known musician about the slave trade and about enslaved people and and he was saying, well, you're from Britain, so, you know, you don't understand or you don't know the Holocaust as slavery. You know, it didn't affect British people. And I said, oh, well, you know, at the very same time as the ships were being taken from West Africa and taking people to America, they also took people to the Caribbean. You know, that's where 50% of the black people in Britain are from the Caribbean. He didn't know that. This was maybe about 10 years ago. Right. I think wow. there's been a wow. lot more... A talk of African diaspora since then, the idea that it hasn't just been from the West Coast of Africa to America. I think something mm. about the way that this uh, civil rights was taught made racism feel like this completely American problem that only yeah, America yeah. could fix when in fact, you know, the legacy of this forced movement of people has its effect all over the world. And so I remember when I started this project, I would definitely wasn't seeking to kind of educate anyone or even educate myself. I was following my own curiosity. I went to this beautiful building. It's a bank from 1923. It had been saved from demolition by this brilliant artist called Theaster Gates. And it had all the books that were ever submitted to the Johnson Publishing Company who made Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine. And Ebony Magazine was, you know, a leading magazine for black people from 1942. And it had all the news. And for me, being able to see history from the inside out, you know, not sort of looking back and thinking, how must have they felt and, and you know, interviewing people retrospectively, but actually being able to hold onto a magazine and listen to the voices from that moment, a voice from the 40s, a voice from the 50s, a voice right in the middle of the civil rights struggle, mm. you know, a voice responding to the assassination of Dr. King, you know, or, you know, those photos of Emmett Till, that's where they were published in, in Ebony magazine. Mm. But also all this beautiful black glamour, you know, 50s fashion. Yeah. And there was a traveling fashion show that went all over the country and all these amazing models who were semi-professional, you know, there were teachers by day or secretaries. And, and then they were <laughs> able to, you know, come and do their own makeup and, and show this kind of everyday blackness, which I wasn't yeah. familiar with. Yeah. I was saying, I'd seen a lot of photos of civil rights and struggle and black power and people with fists in the air or people, you know, resisting the fire hoses. But I hadn't seen people just walking down the street, just mm. going to buy a loaf of bread or taking their kids to school or being at a family yeah. wedding or a party or putting up an art gallery. And so all of this sort of black stuff was really new to me. I thought, I haven't seen these kind of images and I was really interested in them. And yeah, I just found myself really drawn to this 
collection of work and I went back over and over. We're talking about a lot of places. Which one are you going to go for in terms of the place that most solidifies and evokes this idea of home? The place that most means home to me right now, it would be, you know, a place in Leeds. That is the place where I grew up. I actually went to university in Leeds as well. Aside from my, you know, my own mother's house would be this park that's not too far away from us. It's called Roundhay Park. And um, I think it was established a long time ago. I think it was given as hunting grounds by Henry VIII to some wealthy Leeds family. But it's a really beautiful park in Leeds. I remember going there as a child. That's where I learned to ride a bike. I remember Michael Jackson playing there in the 80s and um, standing outside these huge um, barriers that were put up, you know, so people couldn't run in. And I remember people outside pushing the barriers and eventually the barrier fell and I, and I raced inside and my mum dragged me back. You know, she said, don't go in there. There's probably bouncers on the other side hitting people over the head. <laughs> but, you know, that sort of hysteria, the fact that this worldwide superstar had come to a place yeah. I could walk to from my house, that was amazing. And we used to go every bonfire night to watch a huge firework display in it giant bonfire that wouldn't be allowed now for health and safety reasons. You know, the sort of bonfire (laughs) that you can feel from 20 metres away and there'd be wild fireworks. and Legitimate 80s danger. 80s danger, (laughs) And then winter sledging in that park. Um, Roundhay Park, I really think of as a place of home. And if you blindfolded me and sort of dropped me anywhere in that park, I would know where I was, you know, within seconds because I've walked that place so many times. It's particularly interesting in Leeds, I imagine, because of, you know, different cultures. And you say your Caribbean heritage, your your father's from St. Kitts and Nevis. Was that something you were quite aware of as well in terms of diversity in Leeds, the different cultures, the different ways from people of different class like interacted and combined? Was that something that you were really aware of from a young age? I was really aware of it from a young age and I felt like I was always crossing into different groups when I was Mm. young. It's interesting that you speak about class as well as ethnicity because I think they're the big definers of, of space in the UK. And although we have a lot of diversity in our individual communities, in the 80s it was still very much based on neighbourhoods, you know. So I remember I grew up in Moortown, a mostly white area and quite a Jewish area. So we would go up to the street and there'd be synagogues all Mm. along the way to school and there'd be the place where you could buy the bagels. And I went to a school where the biggest religion was probably Judaism and a lot of Orthodox Jewish people and Reformed Jewish people. And so in the Jewish holidays, kids would be off, teachers would be off. You know, we had the Sukkot van come to our school and So I I feel really close to that community and those holidays and rules and names and traditions and all all of that. So that was where I lived in Moortown. And then where my grandparents lived in Chapeltown was a really big black and Asian area. So it's mostly Caribbeans and then some Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Indian families. And that had originally been a Jewish area and then it became a Caribbean area. So There was this brilliant dance school that had been a synagogue and then it was Northern School of Contemporary Dance. But yeah, we used to go there to see my grandparents and they had a huge carnival there every year, which they still do, the Leeds West Indian Carnival, which has been running longer than Notting Hill. It's the oldest West Indian carnival in Europe. If you meet someone from Leeds, they always want to talk about the carnival. (laughs) No, and so they should. My Caribbean home in Leeds was my grandparents' house. I was walking up those four steps past the rose bush into the hall with the brown carpet and the swishy plastic that was always laid over the carpet. You know, you never walked over the hall carpet ever. 
going past the best room where my granddad would be with his friends, sometimes drinking rum, sometimes smoking a pipe. You only went then there on Christmas Day, cabinets full of trinkets and, you know, the silver tinsel Christmas tree, which was obviously always, always there when I went in. And then you went into the big front room, um, you know, scroll of St. Kitts on the wall. There would always be chicken. I don't know when she made the food, but the food would always be ready. You know, chicken mm. with really beautiful gravy and rice that never seemed to be stuck together. You know, the things you try and cook yourself, rice and peas. And my mum is white and English, but all my other cousins had, you know, both their parents were black and mostly from either St. Kitts or, you know, St. Kitts and Barbados. Yeah, so I always really loved hanging out at my nana's house. I had a lot of cousins and the house was always yeah. full of kids. She was always looking after all the grandkids. Were you very conscious of that, of being the only one who had that kind of makeup at home and that set up? I mean, I was conscious of a few things, I guess, when I was little. I was really underweight when I was a kid. You know, I was skinny for ages, really, really skinny. And so in a kind of Caribbean family where there's a lot of prize, you know, on like having a fuller figure, I was always really aware that I was yeah. kind of, you know, skin and bones. I was aware, I guess, like I would pick the peas out of my rice and peas that used to drive my nana crazy, you know, just leave this pile of perfectly good kidney beans on the side of my plate. Or I remember talking to one of my cousins once and she said something about black people. And then she said, oh, I think she probably will have said, because it was the 80s, half-caste people. And I remember mm. thinking, feeling this little sting. I was like, oh, I think she means me. So she's differentiating between me and her. That was the first person I'd heard do that. It felt like a bit of a sting. I thought, oh, okay, so mm. I'm not white in my neighborhood in Moortown with my white neighbors and their swinging ponytails. That's not me. But in this house, which is my sort of Caribbean home, my cousin is saying black people or half-caste, which was always a really uncomfortable phrase. Obviously, as I got older, I realized why it was, which, you know, no one wants to be half of anything. And caste is obviously a problematic word as well. All of those terms, you know, there's half caste or mixed race or mixed heritage or dual heritage or, you know, my friend says black with multiple ethnicities. In a way, there's no word that kind of sits because I think for some people who have a black parent and a white parent, it might be that they've been brought up just by their black parent and they fully identify in black culture. But of course, they benefit from light skin privilege. But then your blackness isn't defined by how other people treat you. It's sort of how you feel about mm. yourself. You know, sometimes I compare it mm. to gender. I think, what is blackness? Is it how we identify or is it how other people see us? I don't mm. know where I really land on it all. I appreciate that mm. some people's black experience is different to mine because I have mm. this thing of being able to cross into these different cultures and because I have this mm. privilege, light skin privilege in a, you know, where we mm. talk about colorism as well. I loved the descriptions of your kind of Caribbean home and your grandmother's house and how much you retain and remember and how evocative it was. And obviously food seemed to be a really big part of that. So let's land on your plate. Let's talk about the dish or food that makes you feel most at home or is home to you what are you going to go for the food that makes me feel most at home is obviously my you know my mum's cooking but the thing with that is that my mum was taught to cook by her mother-in-law who was my dad's mum because my dad was really mm. fussy and he would only eat not just only eat caribbean food but only eat certain kinds of caribbean foods cook certain ways so when i go home whether it's you know not just christmas dinner but a sunday lunch a sunday lunch will be macaroni pie 
baked solid. You know, sometimes you have macaroni cheese in America, it's all slip slidey. Just kind of solid macaroni pie with bacon in it, Yorkshire puddings, chicken cooked in a Caribbean style, but you know, a whole bird mm. of chicken. I, I really like to have mm. that. And roast potatoes and rice, you know, there's always like the many carbohydrates. You know, so you've got to have rice and you've got to have roast potatoes. Very big in West African culture as well. Like, you know, right. just, yeah, you need both. Yeah, you need all like, of yeah, it. It's, it's not an either or situation. Yeah. And then just the simple, you know, is it Brussels sprouts or is it carrots, roasted carrots or, you know, some kind of roasted vegetables? Just a simple kind of Sunday lunch. But that, I always feel my mum's cooking is more salty than that mine, but that makes it more tasty. You know, it, it always feels like a treat to have that food. <laughs> In the Christmas, we have ham, and the ham seems to take nine hours to make, you know, between the sort of, there's the soaking, and there's the boiling, and there's the scoring, and there's the roasting, and there's the sticking the cloves in, and, you know, some kind of wizardry. Well, I love that as a choice, and I think that it'll chime with a lot of people that there is that, because there's the multiple elements of it. It kind of is a manifestation of what ragtag groups like families can be and the different influencing cultures and things that you pick up along the way. And I, yeah. I absolutely love that. And I think the point about the labour behind a lot of this stuff is really interesting. You talked about your grandmother's house and the food just kind of appearing and being really abundant. And I wonder for you, you've just come back off tour, you're still on tour, yeah. right? And it's a it's a family trade, right? Your husband's with you, your partner's with you, your children are along for the ride. How do you kind of balance that? And are, are you somebody that likes to cook? How do you kind of keep all that family life going when, when you're effectively kind of on the road? It's a really good question. And I think the one thing that really changes is meals and mealtime. My kids are three and five. So, so much of that is an effort just to kind of keep them at the table. And But yeah, when we're on tour, meals are different. We would try and keep them at the same time. We order ahead. We try and order healthy food. But often the meal is, is shared with the band, you know. So we will be sitting at a table in the green room or the band room or wherever it is. But generally, it feels that feels like another kind of routine that we have. So that there's two different rhythms, and that's what I'm having to work out really as a parent who's also a traveling music artist. They're both acceptable and they're both good as long as they're both familiar. Mm. And then, of course, there's tons and tons and tons of meals in restaurants. Generally, that you know they're okay in restaurants, and mm. I'm pleased when we can order stuff or they can try it, something mm. they haven't tried before. Um, and they will always try, you know, a different food. And so I think it's nice to be, you know, in Brazil eating different food or in Japan yeah. eating different food. Or yeah. The cultures, the chopsticks, everything's, you know, something to try out. You talking there about work, like creative life and your output as a musician intersecting with like your real life. And that's been a constant throughout your work as well. And it's especially to the fore with Black Rainbows, but obviously the sea as well, like you haven't shied away from writing about real life experiences but then that of course means that you have to talk about them in interviews like this what has your journey with that been i found it really fascinating that the current album black rainbows you felt almost like you couldn't release it under your name because you've got the kind of the head on that oh no people expect this from me this is what a corinne bailey ray record sounds like and you had to kind of almost challenge that so yeah how has that been kind of putting biography down on record as it were i always found it really easy to write personal songs and as you say uh, the more difficult thing is talking about them and sort of explaining mm. them 
And um, I just hadn't remembered that I would have to do that. I think when, you know, mm. when I wrote The Sea, it's kind of a record that's in two parts for me. And I wrote it before my late husband, Jason, died in 2008. You know, I'd, I'd already started the record. And then I finished it a long time after, I guess, with newer mm. songs that were more responding to where I found myself, you know, being 29, mm. being a widow, having had this um, death around, which was so, um, it was really sudden, you know, and like what how that affected mm. me, us, how I felt about myself, the thing of missing a person. And it was definitely difficult to talk about. And some people were really understanding and sensitive. And I felt like I did some good interviews and I wanted to talk about it because I thought it'd be useful for other people. You know, the difficulty mm. I found, one of the many difficulties was there weren't that many young people talking about losing a wife or husband because it is a mm. more unusual thing to happen. So sometimes I would look to read things about people who had lost a partner, but they would mostly be older people, elderly mm. people, or, or even, you know, the brilliant Joan Didion book, A Year of Magical Thinking, which was yeah. so useful. I enjoyed that. And I also had this bitterness sometimes of well, look at all this time that you had together. You know, I, I felt this extra mm. sense of having our long-term futures stolen from us because I was only 29 when he died and, and he was only 31. So, of course, there are other things about being older now that I realise it, you know, makes grief even more difficult when you've lived with someone all that time. So I wanted to talk about it because I thought, well, I'm sure there are some more widows and widowers who are in their 20s, you know, who are just... Mm. Mm have nothing to refer to. Um, so that's another reason I wanted to talk to about it. Conversely, Black, Black Rainbows has been so brilliant because they're other people's stories. So for the first time, I'm not thinking when I'm writing songs, what do I feel? What have I experienced? What am I going through? These are other people's stories. These are stories of, mm. um, you know, Harriet Jacobs who escaped slavery and instead of going north where she knew her master in quotes, would find her because he had this obsession with her and he was a violent man. He had this sexual obsession with her. She hid out in on the plantation in a freed grandmother's house in the crawl space above the storehouse. So when I'm telling her story, I'm telling people she hid in this space for seven years. These lives that I have investigated are so much bigger than mm. my own life. Their stories yeah. are so much more important. The things that have happened to them are so much broader and wider on the spectrum of joy and pain mm. i've really enjoyed making this record and talking about it because there are so many stories celebrated or not hidden silenced erased or not yeah that i um yeah. have immersed myself in it's such an incredible record and yeah you're right for me somebody who has written about black stories in the past and in various forms it was great to have this document that can then send you off down these various rabbit holes and these fascinating little pockets of history. Welcome back to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. Today I am talking to the amazing musician, singer and songwriter, Miss Corinne Bailey Ray. Hi. We're talking about a lot of people, um, historical people, um, people in your life, people that have influenced you. So let's get your person. Who have you chosen as the person that solidifies, evokes, crystallizes this notion of home for you? I mean, I guess it's a really obvious choice, but I've chosen my mother. I still feel a really deep connection with my mum and it 
you know, big specific times in my life, I feel like she's been so solid for me. But also, it's been great to move from our relationship of just parent and child, where you, in some ways, kind of idolize your parent and think they can do anything, to really seeing that person as as a whole person with their struggles or their challenges or their you know honesty i know that she was very capable like you know worked very hard really organized and did so much for you and you know as you say she was a cleaner and came from a working class background yeah they're things that you can think of that that have maybe just kind of reframed things for you and made you kind of reevaluate parts of your childhood yeah, I mean, there are lots of things. I think about what she would project to us, you know, because I'm a parent now, I ask her lots of things about being a parent and I remember moments in my childhood and then I get a new version of, you know, maybe what was really happening and things like money and talking about money. I've never felt yeah. as a child anxious about money because when you're the parent, your job is to make your children feel loved and safe. And I think that's, a really important thing for parents. Sometimes you can feel like you have to kind of be really honest and share everything, but actually you don't. I mean, of course you can be in the shop saying, we don't need to get that. You don't need another one of those or that costs too many pennies or maybe at Christmas, but you don't need to bring them into all the, the details. Mm. So, you know, I guess it's only as an adult, I realized sort of how difficult things were sort of financially for my mum. And I, I really admire how even just the budgeting, you know, when I go to the supermarket, I fill up my trolley and I leave. That's my privilege now that I can afford to buy food. Yep. I remember being in the supermarket and I remember my mum, she would have a sort of running calculation of everything that was in, you know, the whole week shopping, just being able to say no to your children in a really clear way. Mm. We never felt like we were really missing out. You know, it was amazing. A lot of clothes came from a bin liner from people from church. But she would always make it feel, wow, look at this. This is so nice. This is so, wow. And I'd say, mum, this has got a label. And she'd say, yes, there's a way that she could spin everything for us so that it was kind of, mm, you know, mm. it's really magical. How exciting we're getting to walk home because we've missed the bus. This is going to be so much fun. But it really made my childhood. I think it's really possible to kind of make your kids feel somehow lesser or that they're missing out. And some kids don't really mm. know. But I think if you're the parent going, oh, I really wish we could go to Ibiza this summer, but I guess we can't because <laughs> we haven't got any money. You know, you don't do that. You say, wow, kids, we're going camping. There's ways to make things feel yeah, yeah. fun yeah. for children. Maintaining, upholding that magic. And exactly, that yeah. And that uh, yeah, it's of, magic. Yeah, and we yeah. know what magic is. Magic is made mm. up. I think it's really important to yeah, keep that. yeah magic and space around your children so you know she made this world really magic for us and always put a positive spin on things let's talk about your phrase then i can hear just from talking to you that you've got such a facility and fondness for like words and stories and evoking things and details what have you gone for as the phrase that most kind of reminds you of home or means home one that was reasonably simple which was don't run before you can walk i always think of that one when I think I'm trying to learn something and sometimes I'll beat myself up like I can't get this right or I can't get this done and I think well that's because you really have to start with the simple things I'll tell you why it's important to me because I kind of challenge that notion as well the idea of doing things properly mm. is something I sort of struggle with like when I think about playing the guitar I think I am in many cases trying to run before I can walk you know 
So I don't yeah. want to sit and learn scales. I don't want to sit and learn what all the chords are called. I don't want to get the fingering right. I just want to play. And so yeah. that the punk in me wants to break all the rules. And so when I do break the rules and fall on my face, I remember don't run before you can walk because it makes me think I'm trying to do this in the wrong order. Let me kind of go back. Mm. There are many times where I skip the steps, you know, I'm like skipping mm-hmm. through the introduction of a book. Why am I doing this? I bought this to try and learn something and I'm already just like, yeah, get to the good, what, 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 what can I really glean from this? <laughs> a, chi- a chilling thing to hear as, as a writer of books, by the way. <laughs> yeah. but I love that. We have these things that we hear in our youth that we're told and you can take the lesson of it, but also that goes back to the notion of you kind of being the kind of the anchoring force in all this. And you can kind of, you can choose, you can, you can take things on board, you can absorb them or you can kind of reject them and they can kind of guide you in a really special, unique way. And and I love that you dropped in the punk. <laughs> I know that was like your first entry into music, right? Like you played in a band that was, you know, influenced by like L7 and we get to hear a bit of this in Black Rainbows, a kind of return to that. But it's kind of not what people would necessarily expect from you, is it? Yeah, it's not. And that's been the fun thing with the record. Obviously, I know myself in this way, you know, so I I used to play electric guitar. I was in this band called Helen. Again, you know, I got to know the music of Billie Holiday and Kurt Cobain at exactly the same moment as a teenager. These adverts for jazz greats were on the TV and it was, they used to have these series and the catchphrase was always free binder with part one. So you collect yes. all of it, yeah. but you got the binder at the start. And we, invariably, we would always get just the part one because that was always the cheapest one as well. But I got this tape and it was jazz greats, but it was Billie Holiday. And I remember just putting this tape on and being blown away by this voice and really annoyed that I hadn't heard her sooner. You know, I'd always loved singing, but I always had this this texture and sort of gravel to my voice. And so I just thought, oh, it's a shame I can't sing because singers sound like Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston. They don't sound like me because mm. there's all this texture. I'd be like, I wish I could get this, get it off, you know? And then when I My. heard Billie Holiday, I thought, she's got this voice with this texture and she is a celebrated and, you know, a singer. I thought, oh, I didn't know that you could have a voice like that and be a singer. At the same time, I was getting into Nirvana and You know, I was playing classical violin at school, but my sister was bringing home a guitar, which seemed to be like much a much more exciting instrument. And my friend had taped MTV Unplugged. And so we could watch MTV Unplugged and look at Kurt Cobain and look at his fingers, look at his hand position and see those bar chords going up (laughs) and down. Just be like, you don't need to keep changing it. Like if you just find that shape and clamp it on, then you can slide it up here and it works and you can slide it down here and it works and you can slide it here. And so we wrote so many songs like that, you know, with just this thing of like, it's okay to have a textured voice because here's Billie Holiday and here's a way to play guitar because of Kurt Cobain. But also it's okay to have a textured voice because here's Kurt Cobain. And, you know, so <laughs> so yeah. he was like the doorway into all that kind of music. And then, of course, there were so many female-fronted bands. Mm. So it was like, oh, it's okay to also be a young woman in music, you know, to be Juliana Hatfield or to be Courtney Love or to be the band Belly or as you said L7 or Veruca Salt they they were all just doing it they were just kind of there Mm. in a dress playing electric (laughs) guitar I can't wait to hear what you come up with next it's such a good album thanks so much Jimmy I honestly can't praise it enough 
I normally end the conversation by asking uh, my guest about the ways in which their kind of culture or heritage, if they are from like an uh, immigrant background or originally immigrant diaspora, the ways in which that has impacted British culture and the wider world at large. And I think it might be a good time to talk about St. Kitts and Oh, Nevis yeah. and your relationship to that because it's a you know it's a tiny Caribbean island but obviously there are significant uh, people that have come from St Kitts and Nevis and more broadly Caribbean culture so yeah what's your relationship been with the island specifically and you know your Caribbean culture have you been, have you been back I've been to St Kitts a few times I've never made it to Nevis which is just over the water and last time we were there at the start of the year I was sat on the beach and looking, we were right on the peninsula, so we're looking right at Nevis and it's covered with clouds. And I thought, next time, next time. But (laughs) I feel like I haven't been to St. Kitts enough. I've maybe been four times to St. Kitts, but I didn't go as a child. But we used to get the T-shirts, you know, so we would always have like Bailey family reunion. And of course, they would tell us (laughs) the stories. Of course, we would have the photographs. You know, at that time, my nana was living in Leeds, so I, I felt like I had my own, and, and my granddad, we had our own sort of St. Kitts world there. But yeah, actually going to the island was really beautiful to see how green and lush it is, how small it is, to see mm. white sandy beaches and black sandy beaches, to see boys just running over the sand and and diving into the water and helping the fishermen back and thinking, you know, that was my dad's, that was how he grew up. and yeah. You know, he's saying they lived, he took me to the house where they used to live. And it's right, you know, obviously right on the water. You know, he said, you know, that's how we used to have a bath. You know, it's like just yeah. going sort of running <laughs> the sea and just thinking about them, that like the six kids and, and my grandparents living in this small house. When I go there, I feel at home in a certain way. I recognize a lot of faces. The faces of people look like faces in my family. But there's also some things about me that are really, you know, English and all quirky. Yeah. And whereas maybe in my 20s, I would have felt, oh, these are the things that make me not Caribbean enough or not black enough. Now I think, Mm. oh, these are things that make me myself. The way that Caribbean's affected where I am in my home. I see a lot of effects of Caribbean literature in Leeds. Leeds has People Tree, which is the biggest publisher of Caribbean literature outside of the Caribbean. Mostly poems and some novels. But yeah, People Tree's really busy in our city. And a lot of the people I know who are Alpha Caribbeans or whatever, you know, people maybe my age and a bit older, and they will be bedecked in jewelry and, you know, they're poets. I think of Malika yeah. Booker or I think of Khadija Ibrahim. They're poets. Khadija's also a playwright. Malika Booker just won the Forward Prize for Poetry for Amazing. Best Individual Poem. Yeah. When I think of Caribbean culture and leads, I think of literature, poetry. I think of the performative, dance. There was this brilliant teacher called Nadine Senior who taught all these Caribbean boys in the 80s how to dance, contemporary dance, and she treated them as though they were, you know, students in the 20s. You know, so they might have yeah. been not taken seriously in their maths lessons or their science lessons, not encouraged. Once they got into that room, they put on their shoes, they were drilled, they did their exercises, they did. They had their great deportment, and they were mm. taught all the latest theories of contemporary dance, and so many of those dancers went on to form their own companies. So I see the legacy of just one teacher believing in a bunch of kids at school, mm. and, and the music, you know, to a certain extent, that's mostly yeah. around yeah. some carnival. You're probably too modest to say it, but it feels like you are probably one of the best examples of the ways in which Caribbean culture in a broad sense has really impacted Leeds and its influence on you. 
has kind of really, really put something amazing into the world. Uh, Corinne, thank you so much. Thank that was you. absolutely gorgeous. And uh, again, I can't stress to listeners enough finish listening to this and then just go and listen to Black Rainbows like right away um, and you will not be sorry. Corinne Bailey Ray, thank you so much. Thank you. That was such a nice interview. Such a good way of getting into someone's background. Thanks, Jimmy. I feel like I've almost been reintroduced to her. I think I was always a fan of what she did broadly, but... What an incredibly thoughtful, interesting, opinionated, eloquent person. Like I was just totally, totally in love with that. And it was just felt like such an amazing education. And I think she's somebody who's been formed by a lot of different experiences. And she had so many fascinating things to say. I just absolutely loved every minute of that. So that's it for another episode of Where's Home Really? Please join me next time for more stories about family and culture, food and belonging. And we'd love you to follow Where's Home Really on your favourite podcast platform. It's always great to hear your thoughts, so do leave us a comment or a review. From Podomo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really, hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. Until next time.